Well, did you watch the common statement on Gaza by the government that was supposed to be the thing that could be a replacement for the SNP finally getting the debate they wanted on Gaza promised last week by a speaker who did stitch them up, we now can all see that, to make sure that Labour had some kind of motion their guys could vote for to try to stave off the anger across the country and in their party about Keir Starmer's original really weak stance on Gaza. If you didn't, Pat and I watched that statement for you and to call it a damp squib is simply overrating it. Um, I don't know what the SNP does next. We have a little bit of speculation. Uh, we talk also about the Islamophobia allegations that are surrounding Lee Anderson and the Tory party. Speculate on whether that is actually now a piece of distraction from a budget next week that will uh, preside over a, a country that's supposed to rejoice because food inflation is now only 4 and 5%. Uh, we talk as well about the post office and the uh, evidence given today in the Commons um, and look at the uh, Nationals big piece on the Macron report and a particular piece warning that renewables are going to go the same way as coal and oil. No real benefit for Scotland unless we do something fast. Those are the headlines. Now for the podcast. Hi, chums, and welcome to this week's Leslie Riddick podcast. And last week, I thought I was being incredibly Machiavellian in seeing what I thought the Labour Party might get up to in terms of the SNP motion on a ceasefire uh, in Gaza. And lo and behold, what transpired blew all my thoughts of my being a cynical, hard-nosed, I can cut through and be real, you know, I got my finger on the pulse of how a political machinations, because the whole thing just was utterly incredible as it unfolded. And to me, the whole mess kind of symbolised, in terms of what happened afterwards and happened in Westminster, of the position, not just of the Scottish National Party within Westminster, but the regard within which the uh, Scotland is held in terms of our elected representatives and the way the media decides to represent those very nuanced arguments that go on up here uh, in its covering of the whole affair. And uh, I tweeted something, Leslie, and I've never been so retweeted in my life about the two things I tweeted about this, about the coverage and the ignoring of the SNP and the way the Labour Party and the 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 Tory government actually behaved. I mean, I was a, for a moment there, I was a Twitter star in reposts and likes, and I don't think that will ever happen again. It was just so utterly, I think, momentous. Yeah. And, and, and I mean, I, you know, similarly thought, as, you know, as I was watching this, I was actually writing a piece about, uh, about the demise of the nine at the time, because it, it was expected that all the votes would happen so late that if you're writing a column, it's really hard to do it. Um, if something's happening at the same time and you have to wait for it to have finished before you can start writing. Um, but I mean, as, as I was trying to finish this piece about the nine, uh, this incredible set of events was happening with all sorts of googlies and sort of, you know, blame getting chucked all over the place yeah. and, uh, you know, false narratives beginning uh, just quite clearly. And all, everybody's defaults, everybody's defects, um, everybody's prejudices all just coming out one after yeah. the other in the moment, you know. Uh, I mean, I stopped writing at that point because I thought, well, hang on a minute, this is 6.30 now. Um, the debate is live. And I just thought, I wonder if Reporting Scotland will even cut, you know, cut to it. And this is kind of like part of the reason that I just gave, <laughs> um, sort of gave up on the BBC because here's something, you're a news programme, right? You know, here's one of the biggest news stories in Scotland and it's happening in your time live and you can get a feed of it and you don't. And, you know, so it's kind of like the whole of the BBC Scotland. I mean, to be honest, I didn't even bother watching what the nine did with it later, because the thing is, news has got, you know, the clues in the name people. It's kind of when it happens is when people are trying to make decisions and when all this welter of of this flack almost of, of a hostile response from people who have, you know, just got their embedded views about the Scots, nationalism, uh, the SNP, going further as the SNP is doing to talk about collective punishment, having to shore up the position of Labour, all the knee-jerk positions that are all, all racked in there. 
um, you know, news should have been on that actually, you know, and analyzing and showing people what was actually going on and they didn't bother. So, I mean, uh, I, as somebody who worked, you know, in news and, and still obviously, you know, has the bug, I just, just so annoyed about that apart from anything else. But in the many things that are kind of, you know, by the by, I mean, let's let's look at what has actually panned out because yeah. you know as it as it now is is absolutely apparent. Uh, Chris Bryant, the Labour yes. MP, I mean, Mary Black wrote a very good article that just put everything down in a timeline of what actually happened, and uh, that I put put up has been you know retweeted obviously and and her under her own steam a lot, but. What happened was that as they were moving towards um, this, uh, what should have been this SNP debate, um, Labour M- MPs were basically starting to just um, stall. You know, they were they were standing up and blethering and just trying to kind of eke out the previous uh, questions. Uh, it was a 10 minute rule bill, actually, before the Gaza motion. And Chris Bryant, who, of course, many people will now know, ironically, has written a book about mm-hmm. the kind of fast, you know, behavior in the in the commons and the kind of lack of yeah just the archaic sort of obstructionism basically of what happens stood up and archaically obstructed just started blethering he then was on channel four and actually Mm -hmm. let the game away by admitting that he was blethering to give Keir Starmer the time to go and speak to um Lindsay Hoyle the you know the speaker of the house of commons but himself previously a Labour MP You'd have to be in another planet now not to know what surrounds all of that. Um, so that, you know, this was a concerted effort to try to to create a situation where there would be um, an unprecedented moment where one opposition party would be allowed to amend another opposition party's sort of uh, motion, which just, you know, doesn't happen. And then we get got into all of this kind of stuff of the reason that was mm-hmm. given. And of course, there was a whole variety of reasons given, which which is what has led to the, the, the total lack of confidence the SNP and, and Tory MPs have in Lindsay Hoyle. But one of them was this question of security for MPs um, and threats, you know, from one us to presume. And then, of course, you, you just open the gamut to all the kind of bams that are out yeah. there. Who, who turn that into whoever they think it is. It could be just Palestinian, you know, pro-Palestinian demonstrators that are scaring the hell out of everybody and mean that they have to have armed guards everywhere. It could certainly be uh, more concerted efforts quite clearly on the other side. And we'll lurch into Lee Anderson soon. Uh, we've got, you know, the, the far right basically almost, you know, doing Trumpian type um you know, stirring the mob, as it were, with the comments that he's been uh, he's made. So this all starts not being about Gaza, not being about children dying, not being about, you know, what we're seeing. It's then all about whether or not essentially then the SNP are being selfish bams by not letting Labour have a wee shotty so that some of their MPs can say, look, I'm not a complete traitor to the cause. I'm not somebody who's a hard-hearted, I can't say the word. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I actually, vo- I'm voting for a ceasefire. And in all the chaos that was going on, it was so noticeable that, you know, many Labour MS- MPs were standing up and saying, I just want it recorded that I've backed yes. a ceasefire. So, I mean, that's obviously, they are now getting the total heat from the abject failure of their own leadership to have ever taken this seriously and in fact worse than that to have said what Keir Starmer said at the beginning about Israel having the right to cut off food water and whatever to Palestine so it's kind of like do you know there are consequences when you are completely out of step with where the majority of the population are and I'm not meaning that that means MPs deserve to be having death threats or whatever I mean, I think most normal people can see yeah. this. You've got to have something where you feel your parliament is responsive to the kind of feelings that people have on the streets. And of course, if you aren't heard in any situation, you shout louder. You know, that's just what what happens when people are as emotionally committed to doing something about Gaza as people all over the place are. And, you know, so here we have the situation now where um there was a promise that, that mm-hmm. a very chastened Lindsay Hoyle made 
uh, when he admitted he'd made a mistake and so on, uh, that he would then give the SNP another crack of the whip and they could have another debate slot and that would be fine. They could say what they wanted. And so that just didn't actually happen. And you and I have just watched a complete mm -hmm. mockery of everything yep. uh, where there was supposedly this um, government statement would give the opportunity for a debate that meant that the SNP didn't need to have their own debate. I mean, for crying in a bucket. Uh, we were watching for half an hour, yep. during which time there was one SNP speaker, uh, Brendan O'Hara, who was, you know, taken third, fourth, whatever it was, made very, very, very good points. I mean, I'll, I'll let, sorry, I'll shut up, so I'll let you come in with this. But that was it. You know, one, and what, is anyone suggesting there's an equivalence between one speaker, just before we actually decided to lurch off, there was another SNP speaker. So that's two in 40 minutes. Um, that is not the equivalent of a, of a proper SNP debate. And then key point, a vote at the end. Yes. So you know where people stand. Yeah, I mean, God, the, th the things that occurred to me when I was actually watching it was uh, how bullish Lindsay Hoyle was when he came back after meeting with Starmer and unnamed others. And I also found it uh, very Jesuitical, and I am I'm able to say that, folks, around me question it, very Jesuitical when Keir Starmer was actually asked the direct question uh, about whether any pressure had been put on Lindsay Hoyle. Uh, he managed to say he didn't put any pressure on Lindsay Hoyle, but then as is was wont, as with others, including in the, the Conservative uh, leadership, managed successfully not to mention the fact that it might have been put on hold by other Labour MPs. But it was that whole thing of how bullish and aggressive he was, telling people to sit down, and then when he came back, how utterly chastened he was. But the rationale he gave initially was that the House rules were arcane. They were out of date, and we should allow amendments um, on amendments uh, to an opposition day motion. And then it changed to, I want you to have the, all as many voices heard as possible, because this is complex. Well, he didn't pick Leila Moran, the, the Liberal Democrats motion to be debated. And as someone said quite correctly, Leila Moran, who actually comes from a Palestinian background, no, 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 we're going to listen to her. And it did. I mean, and, it was and so she has had death threats. Yes. I mean, that's and, the irony. Yes. This is all meant to be, you know, so that we can show everybody can get their tuppence worth in so that the wider public can see that, you know, if there is this building anger about these guys appearing to be pro-Israel or just, you know, anti-Palestinian, you can get the nuance, you can hear what's their point of view and everything. And that, as you say, Leila Moran is the one that's had death threats over having had the courage to speak out about her rallies who are stuck in Gaza. Anyway, I interrupt. Yeah, plus the fact that, uh, and I thought it was notable that both Joanna Cherry and Diane Abbott, who are two of the most abused politicians in Westminster, both came out and spoke very vehemently against this, uh, the final protestation of Hoyle. It was all about protecting the interests and the defending the lives, if you like, of MPs. And I thought it was, I don't know, you probably did notice that almost simultaneously with this, uh, at Lord Walney, uh, the ex-Labour MP John Woodcock, who now sits as a crossbench peer in the House of Lords, uh, who's one of the I think it was four Labour, uh, former Labour MPs who took the shilling from the Tories to become peers after condemning uh, Jeremy Corbyn and urging people to, to vote Conservative in the 2019 general election. He'd been uh, designated as the independent advisor on political uh, and domestic violence. And he was the one that came out and said at that point, there ought to be a, a ban on demonstrations and protests within the parliamentary area, outside council offices, outside constituency offices. And again, he was being presented as a neutral arbiter within that framework. But I mean, he's, and again, the reason I say this is because he is not neutral at all. He has been vehement when we come and talking about later about his opposition to the all-party parliamentary group definition of Islamophobia. Disagrees with that entirely. And uh, he's also part of the consortium along with Robbie Gibb, who is an executive director uh, of the BBC, non-executive director of the BBC for representing England, uh, who uh, bought the Jewish Chronicle. You know, so in the Jewish Chronicle it has been highly, highly pro-Israel in its actions um, and totally 
uh, totally condemning and alleging that the demonstrations that are taking place and the protests that are taking place are anti-Semitic and they're violent. When anyone who stops and looks at it, as Zara Mohammed uh, did this morning, she was excellent, who is the uh, uh, chief executive of a, a significant Muslim organization, um, and she came on and said, well, show me the evidence for this. Show me the evidence for anti-Semitic behavior. And Gary Robertson was was nonplussed by this and sounded almost embarrassed by the questions he was having to put to her on it. So, you know, these these so-called neutrals that are, again, it just seemed too too neat to me that that report came out and lo and behold, that was Lindy, Lindsay Hoyle's explanation, which then led us down, I think, very, very dangerous highways in terms of the representation of the pro-Palestinian protests and protests in general. Yeah, but anyway, I mean, where we've got to now, I mean, yes. we've both been <laughs> we've both yeah. been listening to what's literally just yeah. happened. Um, right. I mean, Br- Brandon O'Hara uh, made a very sort of strong comment. He was talking. I mean, you know, you, you're listening to Andrew Mitchell for the government laying yeah. out, you know, just the same old stuff you've basically heard that's got nobody anywhere basically over these last what three months or whatever, and trying to still sort of explain why it was important to have an immediate humanitarian pause because you couldn't get a ceasefire. I mean, actually, David Lammy jumped up and said, well, you know, in the same way that you can't wish a humanitarian pause, mm-hmm. um, you can't. The pause is the same as the ceasefire, yes. which actually would be a very good point to have made to Labour all these long yes. weeks, um, that you can't will anything to happen. Pause, ceasefire, people stand on their head. You can't make anything happen by a Commons vote. So logically, that applies to everything anyone says. So then the question is just, you know, the strength of the point that you're making. Now, if, if that's true, then Lamy, who was also quite bullish and, you know, didn't neither Mitchell for the Tories or Lamy for Labour even looked in the direction of the SNP. And the, the benches were, you know, the, most of the mm. SNP were in and the other benches were pretty blooming quiet, yes, actually. Yes. So yep. it's one of these ludicrous things where the only people who seem to really care enough to have turned up were the SNP. Um, but uh, the points that that uh, Brendan O'Hara made, I mean, so they, they were all talking in sort of, you know, relatively limited ways. Lamy's big point was that the ICJ, the International Court yeah. of Justice, their kind of rulings should be enforced. And his big thing was that humanitarian visas were not being renewed. Mm-hmm. OK, fine. So Mitchell kind of came in and said, yeah, we're trying to do something about that. And it's kind of like, really, is that do you think that's the worst thing that's happening at the moment? I mean, Mitchell also came in and said that they put a bit of money into a fund to let mothers in Gaza give yes. you know birth, birth safely. Right. While oh, they're waiting yeah. for an invasion of Rafa. I mean, unbelievable. So Brendan O'Hara came in and just started talking about starvation and collective punishment, the fact we're still selling arms, that there's an illegal occupation, that ethnic cleansing is happening, that if there is a ceasefire, what then? It has to mean stopping arms sales to Israel. Um, It has to mean a criminal court investigation of Israel's behaviour in Gaza. Um, And he talked about a dereliction of all moral responsibility in the Commons and that basically the British government had simply looked the other way. Yeah. This obviously annoyed the hell out of Andrew Mitchell, who talked about you're forgetting the original thing on October the 7th that sparked all this about Hamas and started. I mean, he's generally quite a mild mannered sort of performer, but started jabbing his finger across at the SNP really angrily and saying that, you know, Britain has the toughest arms export legislation in the world. I mean, I can just Mm -hmm. kind of hear the snorts of laughter on that. And when questioned again later by Gavin Newland's SNP MP, who asked simply, what will it take to end arms exports to Israel? And again, uh, you know, he just came back, uh, Mitchell came back and said, well, we just do what the arms export committee tells us. Yeah. Right. So that's it. You know, instead of having uh, being able to really develop your argument, and and probe into, you know, have time to really put, probe into this question of selling arms and probably have some thoughts about why, you know, what the arms export committee is doing. And clearly, you know, you would want to get dig into that a bit if you were the SNP and you now want to move the thing along to what it means to try to stop pouring, you know, petrol on the fire. They didn't have that. They had about, you know, maybe two minutes for Brendan O'Hara to speak 
30 seconds for Gavin Newland's thanks. Yeah. So I wonder where that leaves everybody now. There's 81 signatures on the, the motion of no confidence in Lindsay Hoyle, which, of course, that, you know, then when you look at the, you know, the, the kind of um, I mean, basically the whole of British journalism's moved on. Yes. You know, um, we'll go on to speaking about Lee Anderson, but that's all they're speaking about. So this is kind of, you know, like a big beast of the Tory party. Yeah, we've only got 30,000 people dead in Gaza and so on. But um, that's kind of gone by the by. And 81 people with no confidence in the speaker. Yeah, people are sort of looking at that and saying, well, that means far more of them have got confidence. And then, you know, you get some good commentators who will point out that in the past, speakers have resigned when there's been three layers mm -hmm. of no confidence or 11. So I wonder where Stephen Flynn goes from here um, yeah. with this, because it, it is, you know, I think his... He's been great. I think he's been great. Uh, uh, and he's he's come on and he sounds when he came on in the midst of all of that thing happening that night uh, last Wednesday. He was on Channel 4 News and he was beeling, you know, I mean, I don't know if you saw that, oh, but yes. it was it was just incredible because he even if you, you know, if, if you weren't really nailed to one side or the other, if you just looked at that at him as a human, you know, speaking, he behaved like a human, you know, in, in his annoyance and constantly bringing it back to Gaza and just using ordinary language. Um, you know, I think, of course, a lot of people will just say, yeah, just playing games. Although uh, Nick, I always get, uh, I think it's Nick Watt and Newsnight yes. did a great bit where he actually just pointed out what the SNP have been pointing out, that there have been eight occasions where uh, Labour have had a day where they could, you know, put ro roll the debate out. And Nick Watt, as a correspondent for Newsnight, was simply saying, you know, is this the best that Labour can do if this is the future government, that they basically don't get ahead of the game enough to do the thing on their own terms, <clears throat> which is what they could have done if they'd simply had the courage and the foresight and the wit to get onto this as a real issue instead of running around trying to shut people down and, you know, expel people from the party for mentioning from the river to the sea, you know, all that stuff. You could have actually just been organising your own debate. You could have been the ones that had some sort of authority because you moved first. You could have looked like a real opposition and you didn't bother your arse. Yeah, exactly. Because the last Labour uh, opposition day was about... Uh, Ministerial severance pay. Now, that just shows you, you know, their, their perspective on it. A uh, couple of things that came out of what Lamy said as well, right at the very end, he said that there, and again, this is this whole collusion thing that I think, it's not a conspiracy theory, but it's it's the implicit sets of cultural assumptions and values that will go across the House between Labour and the Conservatives. When he said that, that there, there, there was a potential there for a joint Tory-Labour statement because he didn't believe there's much of a cigarette paper between them and and the Conservatives on it, uh, on, on on their statements. So we have it, we have it there. The other yeah, thing that struck... Uh, yeah, yeah. No, <laughs> well, the other guy... Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, there was one with, speaker yeah. who was... Uh, now, I've just lost her name, but she was the chair of one of the relevant Sarah committees. Champion. Yeah. yeah. So her, so she's the chair of whatever committee, and she'd been to Gaza recently. You're thinking, right, OK. And she started her stuff saying... You know, the horror of what you see, mm -hmm. it's really hard to pour it into one sentence as we stand here right now. And you're thinking, OK, this could be yeah. you know, quite good. And so what she was worried about was that drones are going over uh, to deliver aid and at the same time are taking, you know, are taking gathering data on the location of everything that they're traveling over for potential, mm -hmm. you know, attacks later. And that people are worried that um, aid workers and and doctors who've been killed um, are potentially being targeted by the algorithms that are being de derived from the data with these human humanitarian aid drones. So you think, right, what, where would that lead you towards? You know, so what she wanted to see was that the British government would jolly well raise this question about the naughty Israelis, if this is true, um, having, you know, d d taking data mm -hmm. from their drones and doing something about it. And you think this is fiddling while Rome burns. Exactly. You know, yeah. it's just like, what does it take for you to stand back from this and say, you've just got to, you know, 
exactly what the SNP said. There has to be a, a vote in the UN Security Council. Britain has to vote for an immediate ceasefire. At the back of everything, you know, there's rumblings about the, I mean, it looks like Joe Biden might have slightly jumped the gun in saying mm. that he thinks there's going to be yes. um, a, a kind of deal, basically a truce that can be um, applied before Ramadan begins on March the 10th. But on the other hand, um, you know, a lot of people behind that are saying they think, however, that something like that is where this is moving. And mm. there was a tremendous guy on, actually, who was the defence editor of The Economist or something on Radio Scotland at lunchtime. Just a little line that he basically said, which is that that everyone in the know about all of this feels that if there is um, a was it 40 days, six week, whatever it is, yeah. cease, ceasefire, um, that the war will not begin again. Right. Well, I mean, I'm just intrigued. Uh, I, I don't know what could have pushed Joe Biden to say this, but I do have my suspicions of the fact that there is a uh, presidential primary, uh, Democratic primary going on in Michigan, which has actually yes. displayed its, uh, yeah, uh, clear opposition to Biden's policies. And Sarah Champion, I'm just really looking forward to her speaking because I heard her on the week in Westminster this weekend, on I think it was Saturday, and she had just come back. And it was obviously, I think, literally just off the plane. And she was scathing in terms of the UK government's response. She was scathing in terms of what the Israelis were doing. She was calling for an immediate ceasefire. She was trenchant. She was outstanding. She was articulate. I wonder what happened to Sarah Champion in between yeah. Saturday and today. Uh, I just yes. wonder. She's been got back again and, and from, from that perspective and drawn back into that. And I mean, and compare and contrast every time I see, I saw Lisa Nandy uh, mm. responding, because well, she was obviously asked the comment about the, 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 so the bit we'll be going on to, I suppose, about, about uh, the SNP's motivations and the SNP's motion. And if there is ever, I'm looking at a woman who is, it's emotionally dead behind the eyes because I just wonder how much a former Labour friend of Palestine, now a Labour friend of Israel, actually concurs with what she's she's saying or is she being sent out there to trot out the party line because they believe this is the way to distance themselves from the alleged anti-Semitic cesspit that was uh, the, the party under Jeremy Corbyn. Yeah. And, and you, you see that this morning uh, there's a poll, I can't source it immediately, yeah. that suggests that 40% of people think the Labour Party still got problems with anti-Semitism. So yeah. it's kind of, you know, it's 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 what what price all of this. But that Lisa Nandy thing, I mean, um, just because I was, where was I when this was on Sunday? <laughs> if it was Sunday, it was Tarland. Right? So <laughs> um, I've been all over the northeast and Peterhead and Aberdeen and Tarland. Um, so I was sort of sitting there, you know, with the television in the room and just like, well, I'll just, you know, I'll just watch. Mm -hmm. I'll just watch Laura Kinsberg. <laughs> um, I right. just kind of caught this this little bit of, uh, yeah, uh, Laura Kinsberg trying to get to the bottom of what happened in the Commons Gaza vote last week with Lisa Nandy. In the first 20 seconds, she blamed the SNP for yeah. storming out. TV switched off. Um, yeah. And just as you say, you sort of think, I, I don't know if, if you've just sort of got to the point now where you've just given up on, on Scotland, you know, because, I mean, the majority of people that you're really trying to attract are... Are, are sort of sentient beings who are quite up on this. You know, we've got a different politics. Yeah. We've got a first minister who's been right from the very get-go, has been right about all of this and has chosen to speak about it. So that is kind of just, you know, we've, we've got every city you go to. I mean, where was I? Kind of, you know, again, trying to remember. I mean, Ullapool, and uh, there was a small gathering of people. I mean, in a funny kind of way, the smaller the gatherings, the more... Yes. Sort of moving it is, actually. You know, a small gathering of people around a little statue there. They've been gathering every Saturday. When I was in Aberdeen, I think it might have been when I was heading off towards Tarland, there were people gathering in the corner of the gardens at Princess, uh, the um, Union Street uh, Gardens. And they're there every weekend. And obviously, Glasgow, Edinburgh. I mean, you know, some of the events I was at, in fact, Almost all the events I were at, was at have been holding collections for um, for Palestine. Sometimes the, the entire proceeds of the event has gone to medical aid for Palestine. If you're going to, I mean, I appreciate, you know, they may well say, hey, you know, this is hardcore, you know, nationalists and yesers who were, were really, we can see that these guys are probably not the ones that are going to be swinging to labour. But behind that sits people who just watch stuff enough to get the drift 
of what's going on. And I quite understand that it'll probably be questions of the economy or a feeling of inevitability about Labour or, I don't know, something else that kind of works in the end for, for Labour in some seats here. But my God, these guys are not. I mean, there was also a moment before all of this when uh, there was just that evening earlier on, there was a, a, a discussion um, between, uh, gosh, I'm trying to remember who it was now. Um, oh, no, I've started something and I can't remember. Was it the it, Robert Peston one? No, it was Ian Murray who was actually oh, on. Right. Ian, it was a very unusual one because it was actually Ian Murray and Stephen Flynn together. Mm. And normally what happens is that, um, you know, yeah, uh, here it is. Here it was. It was February the twenty-first. Wonder and I tweeted. How, I wonder how many Labour voters are filled with pride hearing Ian Murray MP refused to back the SNP motion after Stephen Flynn pledged to back Labour. Yes. There's obviously party politics going on, but the tone taken by the Labour MP on News Drive was brusque, huffy, and combative. So very wrong. And that had, you know, about one and a half thousand people retweeting that. So the thing is that that was before the thing even kicked off. It was the just the, well, as well as the content of it, it was the tone of it, you know, yes. which is just no. Well, my tweets actually provided a, a very significant uh, impetus to, to hit the mute button. So you can be shouting into the void, folks, of all the snide remarks that came back to me about basically saying, ha, ha, ha. You were outmaneuvered. We did you one, you know. And again, and it was, if you're looking at political games being played, that that was it. And I, I, the, the statement that was made by Starmer, I mean, was that a vote was taken. There mm. was no vote taken. That, and they said, oh, uh, Nandi said, SNP stormed out. The SNP members of parliament were standing, waiting to vote on the Labour amendment because they knew the SNP motion would not was going to be put. And there was a there was a vote by acclamation from uh, Winterton, who'd obviously lost the plot as well, totally. Because this I was, was watching the woman it. that was standing well, yeah, in for the, the, yeah, deputy, the deputy speaker. speaker, and I was I was watching it, and I'm not thick, but I didn't realise the vote had been taken, and neither did the vast majority of MPs, because it was all done by acclamation. Chris Bryant uh, tweeted the fact that uh, apparently in the Scottish uh, Parliament, he referred to it to as the SNP government. Parliament, you know, weirdly, that you could actually put an amendment to an amendment, and George and George Fox liked that. He said, "Oh yes," and I served in both parliaments and wasn't aware of that. Well, good on you. But it is that, and again, I know George is a big supporter of Hart and Midlothian Football Club, and how would he like it that you know, if suddenly when he was playing a game, they decide to follow Gaelic football rules, and uh, you got a point for every time you put the ball between the posts but over the bar. You know, and this was the sort of stupid gotchas that were going yeah, on. Yeah. And it is, and as Stephen Flynn said, it became Westminster doing what Westminster does. And the media observing from that entirely cynical, it's always about politics and rather than humanitarian uh, uh, concerns that it was all about. And it was that quick leap, Leslie, into doing that. And the yeah. assumptions were it was all about politics. Well, that was another thing that I'd written about, actually, um, with reference to the nine, for example, because, I mean, you know, doubtless when they got to it, they will have done some of the coverage. Um, but the thing is, do, do, do none of these guys actually live in this country? Because every time I've gone to Glasgow recently, particularly Glasgow, I'm going past, you know, from, from the bus station down to Central or wherever else, and you go through a whole long stream of stalls and stuff, particularly at the weekend with Palestine, uh, you know, kind of pro-Palestine mm -hmm. stuff. You'd have to sort of almost, you know, not be living in the Central Belt, I would have thought, to have not noticed um, that there's a lot of public feeling about this. And the job of a broadcaster, a public broadcaster like the BBC, is to reflect nation onto nation. Well, that's not just the mm -hmm. politicians. That is, the, the, the you know, how people feel about it. Now, what they've got to the stage of is, I wanted to hear just the, you know, the punters. Now, of course, you get to that stage where they go, God, that's the scary one. So you end up having a vox pop where people are sent out 
and pretty much have to have equal numbers equal, both yes, ways. Yes. Oh, you know, yeah, so they have to cut. You've got to wait for ages to find somebody who say, yeah, I think this is a lot of nonsense, and all I'm interested in is, you know, you know, very validly, let's let's raise universal credit. I don't care about any of them. So you've got to kind of keep going till you find what might actually be relatively unrepresentative to show balance. But this is the problem that the beef then has because. I, you know, I'm expecting broadcasters. I'm sorry, guys, but you know, you're, you're sort of, you're sort of paid, and your managers particularly are paid to actually try to do something about this, these issues where you're getting stuck. You, you should be, you know, there's no question when you look at public opinion polls that the Scots are much more behind the whole stance taken by Hamza Youssef and Stephen Flynn on Gaza than the rest of Britain, although actually (laughs) the rest is not very far behind. But then it's your job to put flesh on those bones. It's your job to go and show ways. It's show, don't tell. That's what broadcasting's all about. You know, it's not about just putting numbers up. It's showing how people feel about things so you've got to find a way to do that and not just in debate night late at night but on the blooming news you know because otherwise who you know now that the nine has been whacked out of the head and kind of you know is as will soon limp off and what a humiliating moment that was actually yes. when they had the 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 head of news on um gary suddenly forgotten his second name um, want to say Scott, but it could not be, might be otherwise, uh, who was on to sort of basically explain to the, the people who had, you know, the broadcasters who'd put the time in, why they were essentially shite, you know, which must be, <laughs> I mean, you know, I mean, that's a kind of speciality mm. that you have to, if you work for BBC Scotland, you have to be ready for the management to come in and basically, you know, explain yes. to all your listeners why you're about to be taken off air. But I mean, they were they were just doomed to fail. And, we, you know, we said this such a long time ago. I wrote a, the column that I was writing basically started, OK, I was wrong, because back in 2019, I predicted the nine wouldn't last three years and it managed to get to five. But that demise was completely inevitable because it was it was the London management of the BBC yeah. that decided to force the channel to have a news programme at 9pm when everybody else is offering entertainment and drama offerings there is no way that was ever going to be possible to do just none and people should remember where this came from because it's extraordinary how quickly everyone forgets i mean some folk will remember the business about the scottish six there was a head of steam behind taking the the 6 p.m news delivered from london and the adoni reporting scotland bit and fusing them into one program, which, as radio has done for 40 years, basically shuffles the news and delivers it national, international, you know, whatever you want, local, <clears throat> all of it in one program from a Scottish perspective. And the, the thing that, again, people need to remember is that this wasn't just, you know, raving nationalists that were calling for no. that, uh, because there was actually an inquiry back in 2016, the Future for Public Service TV inquiry, led by a Labour peer who backed the idea of a Scottish six. You know, um, there was actually uh, also some Tories, I think, from, from memory, who were, you know, pretty, pretty supportive of that idea. Um, and... Uh, I mean, it's it's extraordinary. Yeah. The acting chair of the Culture Media Sports Committee at the time, um, who's a Tory MP, <clears throat> Damien Collins, said the six o'clock news in Scotland is split into two. The main stories are presented from London, while Scottish news is presented from Glasgow. In the post-devolution era, this can lead to network news programmes from London leading on English stories like health, justice and education. We believe it's perfectly reasonable for editorial decisions on the running order in Scotland to be made in Scotland and broadcast from Scotland as it already is for radio. Right. That was a Tory in 2016. Yeah. So, you know, these guys could, you know, this and this obviously was coming from the record dissatisfaction rates um, that arose after the independence referendum amongst BBC viewers in Scotland, far, still far higher than any other part of the UK. So out of all of that was going to come this, you know, Scottish six. And in fact, for a lot of people, that was even a compromise because what a lot of people wanted was for the for the BBC to go further and just turn BBC One in Scotland into an entirely Scottish yeah. channel. 
and it would edit, commission, shape a whole schedule. And occasionally it might opt into network programs rather than occasionally opting out. So that's what the go for gold sort of option was. The Scotch Six was a kind of compromise on that. And that wasn't even possible. So, you know, here we are with, you know, a Scotland channel that is, you know, it's it's got it's got some good good bits and bobs on it, but its its uh, its profile has been knackered by having a flagship program that has attracted 700 people recently a night. Uh, the other thing, uh, the other kind of idea that's been kiboshed within all of this, is trying to aim at at young folk. The whole point about the BBC Scotland channel was the likes of you and me, Pat, should find it a bit uncomfortable because we're old, right? Yes. So this was going to be, and the, the nine in particular, was going to be, <clears throat> you know, as I think I said in that first article, sort of everybody standing around like nervous parents, um, <laughs> which was going to groove with, you know, young people. Uh, and that was, you know, the, the sport was going to be in a sort of, Feist, you know, all of it was just going to be presented by younger, feistier looking people. Um, and this was going to try to get over this problem that young folk are just not tuning into news or the BBC. Has it done that? Has it? Heck. I mean, one BBC person I spoke to said that the audience figures showed that the BBC Scotland channel has an older average audience than BBC One Scotland, if you see what I mean, reporting yeah. Scotland. So it's gone quite the opposite way. And young folk are getting their news from YouTube now and very primarily just literally that platform, um, which then gives you another problem because the, the, the ideas that were were put out by uh, the BBC for how to sort of compensate for the loss of the nine, um, they're going to have a weekly podcast. Whoa, that's uh, that's a great idea, isn't it? A podcast, Pat. I mean, <laughs> never, I don't know. What never catch on. Now? on. <laughs> Hi, episode 804, I think we're on yeah. now. But I mean, I'm yeah. sure that these guys will catch up. Um, but they also will, will put it on BBC Sounds because they won't put stuff onto Apple, Spotify, Google. They want to drive people to their own platforms. Yes. Um, and that means also that anything they're doing, you know, they won't put stuff on YouTube. So you got to say, oh, and then when you're just looking at the fact that the Scot, the you know, the average young Scot is a yeser. So if any, you know, if if there's any problem just generally with the BBC brand, it could be argued to be there with knobs on for younger viewers actually, um, and that just leaves you sort of thinking, well, every which way here, I don't know what you're up to now. Yeah. Oh God, I mean it's. Meanwhile, uh, what's going on, though, as you said, there's been a complete focus and that, that switch that took place uh, to look at uh, focus on Lee Anderson, which I think has let a whole lot of other people off the hook in the Conservative Party in terms of the statements that they've been making, because the, Lee Anderson has now been suspended. And uh, I, I don't know if you actually saw it because you switched off with Lisa Nandy. Oliver Dowden, the Deputy Prime Minister, when asked uh, about Lee Anderson, says, well, you know, um, was he what he said Islamophobic? Well, I don't like what he said. And then it developed over the weekend. And by Monday, when he was suspended, they were turning around and saying, well, of course, yeah, what he said was wrong. And Nick Ferrari, hardly on the left. Uh, I think he asked uh, Tomlinson six times uh, this morning, uh, what was he suspended for? Or uh, what he'd said was wrong. And eventually Ferrari says, look, was what he suspended for, was he making Islamophobic statements? Uh, what he said was wrong. He answered him three times, and that was six times and when in total, eventually. And Nick Ferrari went, well, that's it. I'm ending the conversation now because you've obviously got nothing to add to this. Bang. <laughs> and, he, and he went. But it, there is a definite link. I don't know what you think about this. I think there's been a definite link between the events of last week and that framing of the pro-Palestinian marches and protests as being uh, violent, as being dangerous, and their their characterization as being Islamist. When Islamist being, the definition apparently, of the transference from a personal set of beliefs in terms of your faith to the transference of those tenets of the faith to social and political action and governance. Now, 
you know, I mean, I may have, I've got objections to anybody's faith on that, but a lot of the people who are currently complaining about so-called Islamism are the very folk who would actually trumpet Judeo-Christianity as the basis of their political beliefs. You know, so mm. it's worrying in that aspect. But I do think it's opened up that niche that's allowed someone like Robert Jendrick, uh, who's talked about uh, no go, go areas, etc. Sorry, that was that was Paul Scully, but it's opened up the, to Robert Jenrick, Paul Scully, Lee Anderson, and Suella Braverman. When Braverman can actually turn around and say, who has not been suspended, the truth is the Islamists, the extremists, and the anti-Semites are in charge now. They have bullied the Labour Party, they have bullied our institutions, and now they have bullied our country into submission. And you say to yourself, that's fine. That's fine as far as the Tory party is concerned. So is there an Islamic phobia running right through the Conservative Party? Or is Rishi Sunak so utterly weak and so craven about his desire to, to harbour these potential people who are going to vote for Reform UK that he's willing to put up with anything in terms of what have gone, in my opinion, way beyond dog whistle racism to outright racism? Aye. Yeah. Well, you know... <laughs> I mean, I don't think anybody's weeping for the difficult situation Rishi Sunak finds himself in, no. now, but it is a real honey of a one, actually, because, I mean, I see that, you know, I mean, it's extraordinary, really. But the, the Daily Express, and I'm not reading it, folks, I'm just sort of seeing the headline, has got a piece about um, the, uh, the, the Red Wall Conservatives are sort of uh, the headline is get him back. Tories rally round race row, in quotes, Lee Anderson. Yeah. So, you know, these guys are now, this is all so proxy, you know. I mean, this is kind of probably what's this. Next week, there's a budget. I mean, if you were looking with a weather eye to, you know, mm -hmm. Joe Biden's uh, comments about a ceasefire just before the Michigan primaries, where, you know, there's a lot of discontent about his position on, on that. Well, here we are, sort of a week to go till the budget where, um, you know, the, 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 the right wingers are looking for tax cuts, for goodness sake, you know, when we're in a situation where everything's falling to pieces. And we'll get on to that because the Scottish budget or yeah. spending statement is actually on this afternoon. We're recording this at lunchtime. Um, so, you know, a lots of the debate that, that that will be held within that and lots of what has been preceding this in the last couple of days has been predictions of, all sorts of services in Scotland going by the by, the council tax freeze is a problem and so on. So, you know, all of these these things are due to lack of money. And, you know, what the right wingers are trying to do is to get uh, Jeremy Hunt to basically look like a proper conservative and announce tax cuts um, when pretty much every public service is just, you know, looks like yep. it's falling to pieces. Um, so that, too, fits into all of this. I mean, okay, it's e it's it's easier for them to get all hot and bothered about Lee Anderson, and I see some conservative democratic organisation has called Sunak a snake for suspending, you know, yeah. for, for suspending Anderson. I, I mean, it's it's extraordinary, really. Um, and then, of course, someone within the Conservatives has actually come out and said something because there was such a, you know, as you say, a ridiculous situation with that interview this morning, um, basically commenting that, you know, that the comments had confused uh, the, the confused Muslim, Islam or, you know, being a Muslim with being an Islamic extremist, which is kind of like, mm, OK, yeah, that's. Probably most 11 year olds have kind of got that one. Um, so that's as far as they're clearly going to go. But in the same way as all these things become sort of, you know, totemic for other bigger issues, um, that's all that's all just going to be a suitable distraction from, you know, Gaza, from what you know the, the kind of meltdown in the economy from all these you know the good news that food inflation is only what is it four or five percent <laughs> yeah. now you know which you know is at least presenting broadcasters with the problem of how they present something that sort sounds like good news but it's just <laughs> which is still totally news. appalling yeah. and these yeah. ludicrous interviews where you get some poor person <clears throat> fam mum usually with kind of you know a couple of bairns being asked whether or not food inflation going down to something and then a, a potential a little bit of a cut in the astronomic heating bills will help her. And she kind of goes, well, not really. And they go, mm, and then move on to the next thing. I mean, 
so I don't know, you know, that these guys will go round in circles for a while, but I mean, they, and they just they love all this. I mean, yes. Jason Rees-Mogg was on apparently GB News, and I do love the source that I'm reading here has put in brackets fee fees around thirty thousand pounds a month mm. for Rees-Mogg to be on GB News. So it just, you know, it's just like just to remind you, and um, it's saying that uh, you know that Lee Anderson's comments were infelic. I can't even say it infelicitous. Infelic- but he, right. he should not have had the party where it withdrawn. So, you know, I, I, honestly, to me, this is like th- they get what they want when we start spending a lot of time on this. Yeah. You know, I mean, because, yeah. I mean, OK, you know, they're not going to change, change. And Rishi Sunak's kind of on one side, you know, he's saying he, he actually personifies the proof that racism doesn't exist within the Tory party because, look, you know, he's actually the, the, the Tory leader. They'll go around in circles for that for quite a while. And then, you know, at the same time, so that kind of overlooks the, for example, the post office nonsense, which has yes. been going on as well this morning in uh, in the Commons, where there was a select committee hearing evidence. A lot of people were very interested to hear whether or not the claims from the previous uh, post office chair, Henry Staunton, he was the guy that said that actually he'd been told to just slow down mm-hmm. horizon compensation payments. Then Kemi Badnoch came out, you know, Bielan, and basically said this is total lies and porkies. So there was other characters appearing today, like the new C- chief executive of the post office, Nick Reed, And there's a, I don't know, you know, he's just one of these very guarded, you know, oh, sort of yes. political kind of careful speakers who said, you know, he'd absolutely no evidence to say that um, they'd been told to slow, slow down payments. But the MPs were basically saying to them, so why is it taking two yes. years then? Yes. Are you just crap? And uh, one of the guys who, who I kind of didn't get his name was trying to say that, well, actually, it was the utterly excellent ITV mm-hmm. drama that basically, uh, and they're yes. so delighted about this, produced an extra thousand claims, which meant that whilst yeah. they were kind of getting on there with the 2000 they were dealing with, suddenly they were kind of dealing with an extra 1000, which means the whole you know thing had gone Pete Tong. And actually, when you're listening to Alan Bates' evidence, you know, the... <laughs> I hope this man never takes any form of honour to go to the House of Com- you know, the House of Lords or anything, because, you know, he's the obviously yeah. the wrong submaster postmaster who was central to that ITV drama. But I mean, he was he was is so kind of just you know calmly, pleasantly contemptuous of the whole thing, um, and is basically saying that it's the process that the post office has insisted on, where they want to have dis- dis- they need to have disclosure around each individual case before they can can then continue towards a compensation payment. I mean, there's almost like a class action waiting here, a class outlook to look at, because the the, the post office has just now apparently given up doing any other prosecutions because they're so, you know, hold beneath the waterline. But there's still this 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 uh, process <clears throat> is still the thing that's slowing things down. So that that uh, Alan Bates himself hasn't got a date for when he might be, and then he doesn't want the word compensated yes. because he's pointing out that this is financial redress. This is money lost to people. The compensation would be what he wants is some actual hard deadlines. If the post office don't meet them, they should actually then pay compensation to the people waiting. He wants the whole process taken off the post office. And he said this extraordinary thing where he said he would actually just he said he thinks the post office is just crap and he would sell the post office to Amazon for a pound. Oh, geez. Yeah. Um, he said and he would he would get them to, you know, he would get firm contracts established with sub postmasters with Amazon. And he said we'd finally have a service that's worthy of the name. Now, that's I was looking around for some responses to that. And there's not much. Why? Because they're all talking about blooming Lee Anderson. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it is again because I, I, I was sitting there with my, my my little clincher there because there were the Tory party is the only one that has not uh, accepted the all party parliamentary group definition of Islamophobia uh, because of it. I mean, the allegations were floating around. It was all all this lefty nonsense. Well, it was Anna Subri. Uh, Wes Streeting and and Saida Varsi, who were the three leading lights on it, who came up with it, and hardly doyens of the left in all three cases. I would have, I would have thought. But the other thing that occurred to me there was uh, was the fact that that ITV drama would be on at nine o'clock at night, would it not? 
to, uh, about the post office scandal just at the precise time when the nine was going out. So that that mm. people were yeah watching that rather than rather than yeah, the nine. Yeah, Alan makes the point. Yes. Yeah, it made the, I thought you made the point point brilliantly there. The, the 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 other thing that was that was going through my head, and the national has produced a tremendous uh, amount today, because it's the fiftieth anniversary of the uh, the writing of the the infamous secret Macron report, uh, which I know for a fact when people got a hold of it during the the referendum was actually startling and and eye opening, and it's available. I'll I'll, I'll put the link up to it because you can read it all and read it and weep folks about uh, the the misuse the mishandling the total incompetence and scurrilous behavior and miss and the waste of the money that was that was derived from the oil and gas exploration and production in the north sea but the other thing that came out of it was uh, on the back of this simon forrest it's uh, who's the ceo of nova innovations um, uh, a, re- a fantastic renewables company has written a tremendous article in the National. Um, you know Simon far better than I do, but I've met Simon. I believe an incredibly impressive character and uh, a tremendously successful and uh, enterprising, enterprising man who's developed this company from scratch in terms of renewables. Has written a compelling article, I think, about the what the what the, we could be facing the third economic disaster uh, in Scotland of deindustrialisation and missing the boat. The first, the closure of the mining industry and the destruction that that brought across Scotland. The second was the, the waste of the oil and gas development. And the third is, and he lays the blame directly at the feet of both the UK and the Scottish government of the missed opportunities that are on our doorstep with renewables. Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a brave thing for somebody with a large, you know, one of the most advanced, largest tidal energy companies to actually be basically biting the hand that feeds the hands, plural, that mm-hmm. feed the, or the hands that ought to feed. Yes. <laughs> um, but I mean, he's, you know, he's got great examples. And honestly, people do do have a look at this. Um, he just takes one example to start off with, which is because all his examples are what he sees because he lives in in the south bit of Fife, mm-hmm. so he's kind of seeing the the remnants of the 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 coal the collapsed coal industry. He's seeing the the rigs that are all stacking up now to be decommissioned from the oil industry, and he's seeing. Um, the the big um, offshore wind farm that's coming to life off yeah. the East Nuke of Fife. Um, and he says it's a two billion pound, billion pound wind farm. It was built by the state owned French electricity company and not a single bolt was manufactured in Scotland. Yeah. Now, you know, and he says as a, as a result, it looks likely that the people of France will earn more from this wind farm than the people of Scotland. Scotland's third great extractive economy is underway. Now, he's a practical chap, so he's actually telling people how things work. And yeah. lots of people will have heard about, you know, the Scotland um, auction, which undersold the, the licenses for um, renewables, wind turbines and the, uh, you know, in offshore wind farms in the North Sea. But this is another thing that he's highlighting, because since his kit and company work across the world, He's quite familiar with how other companies mm-hmm. treat the, him as a sort of outside company. And basically, most pro- uh, projects have to, de- to deliver 40 percent uh, to 60 percent sometimes of local content. In the jargon, this is known as in-country value, ICV. And basically, if you don't deliver, you forfeit the project. So yeah. let's go back to what we've just heard about with this one. This is a two billion pound project. Now, see, that would probably mean you'd abide by those rules. What we've got here, um, he says, the UK government, the Scottish government, Crown Estate Scotland will tell you that these targets of local spend have been written into contracts. The penalties for missing them are thousands of pounds. Yeah. Two billion, thousands of pounds. So nobody's paying any attention at all. And that's just, you know, that's killing because... (laughs) You know, he he worked through what that would actually mean if it had been applied to, you know, just that wind farm. It would have meant 800 million would have had to be spent in the Scottish economy. That would have built up a a supply chain of companies. The money would have been recycled over and over again in communities. 
and we would be beginning to create a domestic renewables uh, sector that could export globally. But we're not. That's just one field, one project. That that money has all been lost. Now, this is hot stuff. This is so important. In all the talks that I'm doing around the Denmark film, that the the way that the Danes are managing their energy systems, uh, and the fact that they have, you know, Copenhagen, 98% of households have district heating. Um, you know, that's a norm. So that this is really kind of blowing people's heads, basically, as to quite how different it is here and how much we're not getting onto it. This is so important, folks, because, you know, if we need to be bold, we need to act, we need to start, we need to start making mistakes, we need to start making connections with the companies, headhunt a few of them and put them into our own, um, you know, Scottish energy company, which we're promised. Uh, if we don't have the expertise, go out and get it. I mean, fo- blooming football managers in this country know how to yes. stack up some you know, <laughs> talent when they haven't found it locally. We just need to do this. Otherwise, what's happening is we're just handing billions over, ironically enough, to the state companies of yep. Nordic countries. And yep. much as I love the Nordic folk, I love us more. You know, we should be getting that money for us. And not just making, you know, just being harvested, basically, as we're about to do. So I hope that the National, at at the end of this really powerful piece um, that Simon's written, I hope that the the National now actually asks for a response from every political party in Scotland um, as to quite how they respond and how they would change any of the very specific problems that are kind of limiting renewables, how they would change that. Because we were in an election campaign, yeah. essentially, let's get get responses to this, you know, so that it doesn't just go out there and then just everyone goes, geez, and then it just drifts away. Yeah, I mean, it was the it was the. It was the figures that, that that got me in reading it, and and I thought an extremely powerful piece, as I say, and very well written. But taking that through the three stages and the three the three potential disasters for the Scottish economy, the three missed opportunities, and that 800 million, and as you said, that that multiplier effect, to use the old Keynesian term, that could ricochet right through communities, that would bring in far more money to local people than than the initial. And the, the the lost opportunities in terms of the, the licensing. But it's, it's, it's truly lost because, uh, yeah. I, I mean, I was speaking to Simon about this and um, I, I hope I'm remembering correctly that, you know, he thought that actually, however, if there had been that requirement to do, you know, local spend um, on some of the, let's say, some of the steel, some of the hardware, we don't actually have the capacity to produce it anymore. Right. So it's it's yeah. it's that bad. But then, of course, you only have the capacity to produce what you've been asked for. Yeah. So, you know, this kind of shines a light. It's, it's like a, a different light than the kind of ferry debacle type stuff. You know, this is about what can we produce? Do we have enough ongoing contracts? Because Ferguson Marine is sitting apparently mm-hmm. looking like it's going to go Pete Tong uh, because it doesn't have new contracts. I mean, this is madness. We've got We've got shipyards. We've got, you know, we've got, the, you know, a, a, a massive resource that's being beginning to be tapped in offshore wind and in tidal. We've got the ability to put in requirements to have Scottish companies and workforces used, and we haven't got the capacity even to deliver the kind of hardware that's needed. When we should be the ones that see the biggest growth in this kind of stuff. If you were to yeah. throw in district heating, there's even more hardware. Yeah. And again, this is one thing that people have been, there's many points where you see people almost biting the carpet watching the Denmark <laughs> film. But, you know, the little place that we went to, Skiva College, um, basically they, they're training people for the green transition. Um, they're doing cabling, subsea cabling, all the kind of gubbins that connect the, the turbines, which, of course, Vestas, a company created by three uh, Danish blacksmiths in the 1970s, has gone on because of investment to now be producing a fifth of the world's turbines. That should have been us as well. Yeah. But anyway, um, you know, that's that kind of thing is is we just have to get in and and begin the process of of kind of reindustrializing by creating a flow of contracts. Yeah. And I think the point that you made, and hopefully the national 
in the light of the article will take up your suggestion and pursue this mercilessly across, mercilessly across all political parties to get what are you going to do about it? What are your plans? What are, what are you going to put in front of us as an electorate? And we, we the electorate, can hold these political parties um, to account for their failure to put anything in place for the future. And the, the lost opportunities have gone, but the opportunities will still be there in the future. And, and talking about the, the, the Denmark screenings, uh, you've got uh, a few more upcoming, and I'll, I'll be continuing to put the links uh, in, in the show notes, folks. And I hope that people do actually read the show notes. I mean, I, I spend some time writing them. It'd often be quite good to get a bit of feedback to say people would, I often feel like, I mean, it was, uh, I often feel like putting something in there that says, uh, you know, something absolutely ludicrous in every week, just to spot if anybody's actually reading it, it comes back and says, what, what the heck did, heck did you say about, about so-and-so there? It's, that's utter nonsense. But no, um, the, the other thing to say is that there's a podcast extra coming out tomorrow. To, to all our friends who are subscribers uh, about the Scotonomics Festival, which begins uh, on the 22nd of March and is mainly in Dundee, but there are a couple of events that are taking place in, in Leith as well that go along with it. And we have an interview with uh, William Thompson, who is the co-founder of Scotonomics along with Kieran von Sweden, uh, about what Scotonomics is about and about what the festival is about. And so that will be winging its way to you tomorrow, our subscribers. And the following week, it will be coming out to, to everyone else because MOR on my holidays for a week. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> yep, grand. Yes, yeah. I, I just keep thinking, yeah, I've got to do the same thing at some point because otherwise it'll be next year. But yeah, I hope you have a great time, my dear. And just because we won't be then live next week, it's just to say that, the National is also doing a bit of a special event. I hope I'm not blowing the thing too. But anyway, somewhat akin to what somebody else in this podcast did 26 years ago in The Scotsman um, with regard to International Women's Day. So um, there'll be, an, I think, a, a paper that's, that's a very interesting one to get on International Women's Day, which might be next. God, I wish I hadn't started this now. Next Friday, I've lost track of all my dates. But anyway, right. whenever, March the 8th, Get the paper. That's what I'm trying to say. Great. On in that shameless piece of uh, promotion for both the National and the Leslie Reddick podcast, I will see you in two weeks. But don't forget, folks, there will be that podcast extra coming out next week. And speak to you later, chums. <laughs> <laughs>